What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. <laughs> we are recording in front of a live audience at Columbia University in New York fucking city. Before we begin, we'd like to recognize that we are on Lenape territory and we acknowledge the importance of settler colonialism. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I'm joined by all of my co-hosts for the first time ever in 97 episodes. We have Shireen Ahmed, the fiery freelance sports writer, law and order aficionado from Toronto, Canada, who today was named on the 2019 Muslim Women in Sport Power List. Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress in Washington, D.C. Jessica Luther, freelance journalist from Austin, Texas. And Dr. Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State University. Before we begin, we have got to thank Dr. Frank Garitti, Associate Professor of History at Columbia University. As well as our partners at Hofstra University's Cultural Center for making this happen. We'd also like to thank Farah Jasmine Griffin, the chair of the brand new and amazing African American yes. and African Diaspora Studies Department here Department. at Columbia <laughs> University. Also to Sharon Harris and Sean Mendoza for all of their logisticals support. They are the main sort of staff people here. Mm -hmm. And uh, to Elena Coverdal of the journalism school who located the space for us. So thank you very much to all those wonderful people. As ever, we need to shout out our amazing patrons. We could not do this without you. And we would like to dedicate this show to Barbara Bosner. Lindsay, could you tell us about a little exciting breaking news today? Yes. <laughs> okay, so just a couple of hours ago, the U.S. women's national soccer team escalated its ongoing wage dispute with the U.S. Soccer Federation when it filed a gender discrimination lawsuit, which we are very yeah. in solidarity with them. It happened a little late for us to do a whole segment on it this show, but of course, stay tuned. We will revisit. But I wanted to kick this off by reading a quote from there, the lawsuit, which to me is just one big mood, I would like yes. to say. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
So despite the fact that male and female players are called upon to perform the same job responsibilities on their teams and participate in international competitions for their single common employer, these female players have been consistently paid less money than the male counterparts. This is true even though their performance has been superior to that of the male players with the female players, in contrast to male players, Mm -hmm. becoming world champions. (laughs) What better news on International Women's Day? (laughs) Happy International Women's Day. So for the first segment, we'd like to think and take a moment about the state of women and coaching Mm -hmm. in sport. Opening it up, we're going to have Lindsay. Me again? You again, because you're Joni, Joni. Yeah, Joni. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, there was big news. Even you might have heard it on our Badass Woman of the Week segment, where Joni Taylor, the head coach of the Georgia women's basketball team, gave birth less than 12 hours after a victory over Mississippi, after she was coaching in a victory over Mississippi. And then two days after giving birth, she was back on the sidelines. She surprised her team and came back to the sidelines. We all, we lauded this. It was on the show and she got lots of superwoman headlines. But to me, there was another side to this, which is heavens, this should not ever have to happen. This is incredibly unrealistic. And are we just setting now really kind of a dangerous precedent? And I know that wasn't her goal, but I think it gets, to me, I got incredibly bothered by it. It made me think a lot larger about the pressures that we put on women in coaching, especially mothers in coaching, and how much that in order to fix the statistics that we're going to start, we're going to talk about a little bit later in coaching, we have to do a better job figuring out this maternity rights and coaching thing. And Jess is going to talk a little bit about a, there was another lawsuit in Georgia athletics that was about discrimination against a pregnant woman, a pregnant coach. And that made me think again, did Joni feel like she had to get back there on the sidelines in order to keep her job in this incredibly competitive market? Did she, maybe they didn't tell her that, they might even have told her the exact opposite, but the pressures of the industry and the expectations that we put on women to not have being a woman make it any different than being a man, right? A man could be back on the sidelines two days after, you know, had a baby, and it wouldn't be remarkable. So the woman wants to do that as well. So... 80% of athletic directors are white men. (laughs) And they are the ones, we have to always remember that these are the ones who are hiring women or coaches of any gender in college athletics. It is white men doing the coaches, doing the hiring. And I recently, and it made me think how much of this starts at the top, right? So much of this is from the top down. I recently spent time with a women's basketball team where the head coach said very much encouraged the women on her staff to take time for their families on a daily basis. She said, I trust you to get the work done, even if you have to sneak out for a recital at 3 o'clock. We're a team. If you need to go, if there's a doctor's appointment you have to go to, somebody else can take care of it. I know you're going to get your job done. And she said, though, the most important thing all the women on that coaching staff told me was they had never been empowered like that from someone at the top before, right? 
they it didn't it might not have been said don't do this but it was they were never strictly empowered and I think that in order to really make pro more progress for women in coaching, what we have to do is empower more women to be able to be mothers and to be able to get the job done and kind of stop lauding the superhero status of getting back to the bench two days after giving birth. I don't think anybody should do that. I know, Jess, you had some thoughts on this, and, yeah. and I'm the only person on this panel who hasn't given birth, so I know that people have more thoughts on this than <laughs> I do, because there's a lot I don't know. Uh, and, uh, you know, don't yeah. really want to, but keep going. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there is sort of this dangerous narrative around, yeah, can you all hear me? Dangerous narrative around this. It, and it's so hard, right, because we don't want to take away from what as an individual was a spectacular thing she did. And she was really clear when earlier this year in January that she wanted to return as quickly as possible, that this was a goal of hers. And so as an individual making her choices, but we want to think about it systemically and the pressures on her, right? And so I think it's really telling that Georgia, UGA's deputy director of athletics on March 5th, there was a quote to the Macon Telegraph, and they said, her swift return is one of the many ways that Coach Taylor exemplifies her dedication mm. to UGA and our community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really, we got to really pause and think about what that message means right. to mm -hmm. other pregnant employees um, and people who are going to have to make these decisions. One thing I kept thinking about, I'm going to just be graphic yeah. for a second, that when she returned to be on the bench two days after giving birth, like she was probably still literally bleeding right. from yeah. that. Like she was absolutely still having very real physical symptoms because that's how bodies work. Y'all didn't know you're going to learn that today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that quote came out on March 5th. On March 6th, in the Macon Telegraph, there was a report about an ex-coach for the University of Georgia, so the exact same university, the women's equestrian team. Her name was Alexandra O'Toole. She's suing because she says that when she that she was fired in May of 2018 when she was seven months pregnant after being called preggers by her boss and having, quote, endured taunts about her pregnant condition and questions concerning her priorities, right? And so maybe Joni Taylor did this like this was a choice she was making on her own that she wanted to do at the same time though we know that there was at least one other pregnant coach um, in this exact same space who felt like that was being questioned um and so you know there's so much here and i know that amira is gonna i think amira next um that we're gonna talk about the scarcity for right. women in coaching yeah. like that yeah. you're really trying to hang on all the time yeah. Yeah, and so that's such a great point to think about this maternity issue is one of the many barriers to the sidelines for women who want to be coaches. And I think, as Jess mentioned, to think systemically, it really requires us to continuously upend some of our nostalgia or kind of romantic feelings around Title IX and to be able to think of this legislation as something that is one step but not a completed step at all. And so Title IX, when it's enacted in terms of college sports, the percentage of women coaching women's sports is over 90%, close to 96%. Now, today, that's under 50%. So one of the things that you have as a consequence of Title IX, when it becomes institutionalized, become not super lucrative, right, but moderately rel <laughs> relative to men, right, not lucrative, but more lucrative because now programs actually exist, unsurprisingly, 
women as coaches are exiting programs as they're becoming formalized and institutionalized. And actually it mimics something that happened before Title IX at historically black colleges and universities where there was robust athletic opportunities before Title IX. And as they started to formalize even those opportunities in the late 20s and the early 30s, black women coaches were pushed out in favor of Cleve Abbott at Temple at these schools developing programs. So it's a pattern. But I also think that it points to an idea about cycles and pathways where it's really hard to be what you can't see. And so it's equally as hard to figure out how do you become a coach, especially if you don't see that at all. So I I remember, and I I mentioned this on the pod before, Rutgers basketball coach C. Vivian Stringer, trailblazer coach, she sued her high school to integrate their cheerleading squad so she can be a cheerleader. But if she asked her why, why she wanted to be a cheerleader, she said it got me on the sidelines. I could yell Mm. at the boys from there, right? (laughs) And so I, I think that that's really instructive about the kind of myriad of ways people had to get really creative to find a pathway into coaching. And I think that the other part of that is that that image, that representation matters, but also that image can really control our connotation of coaches. So I want to end thinking about Dawn Staley, who gave a really great quote about this. And she says, I'm very aware of what my success represents. I'm also very aware of what my failure would represent. And this is a piece she wrote at the Players' Tribune. Black women in coaching positions are held to higher standards, especially because there's so few opportunities. And there's stereotypes that we have to navigate, like being an angry black woman on the mm-hmm. sidelines. Mm-hmm. And she goes on to say she'll see a picture of her next to headlines that could be joyous. They could have just won a national championship. But the, pa- the face that she's making, she's scowling, she's yelling at the refs. And so she talks about what, even with being on the sidelines, the pressure to temper yourself and knowing that if you step outside of this box, whether that means you take too long of a maternity leave or you're too angry or whatever, could Mm -hmm. result in you losing your job and there's not that many opportunities and your chances for employment, you don't get a lot of second chances either. Shireen? Yeah, thanks, Bren. One of the interesting things is when we say, well, there's very few opportunities or women actively coaching men in sports, you're like, no, there are some. When I mean you, I don't mean flamethrowers. I mean like angry white men will literally be like, there are women, yes. And I'm quoting from SB Nation here of the roughly 2,600 coaches employed by the NBA, NFL, NHL, MLS, and MLB, and this includes minor league affiliates, there are six women. So it's... Okay, uh-huh. guys, everybody calm down. Yeah, there's six women. Yeah. Now, when we look at the caliber of the women in these coaching positions, they are not mediocre men. They are phenomenal, phenomenal athletes, coaches. So we've got Christy Tolliver of the Washington Wizards right now, also plays for the Mystics, and she's not being paid for some ridiculous reason that I think someone else can elaborate. I'll just be mad. It'll go to the burn pile automatically. We've I got can explain later. But yeah. Explain later. <laughs> no. Becky Hammond, who's at the most wonderful, with one of the most amazing coaches <laughs> in the NBA, Pot Greb Popovich, who is my president. I'm Canadian, but like I consider him my president. Prime, prime No, Christine Sinclair is my <laughs> prime minister. <laughs> Um, Very clearly, very clearly, she's the captain of the Canadian women's soccer team, for those that don't know. Well, you all do know, obviously. You you might have mentioned it once once or twice twice on the show. There's Phoebe Schechter. Oh, sorry, Becky Hammond's assistant coach to Greg Popovich at the San Antonio Spurs. Phoebe Schechter at the Buffalo Bills, also assistant coach. We've got Jenny Buzicek, Dallas Maverick, assistant coach as well. Um, Katie Sowers, who is offensive 
defensive assistant coach for the 49ers. And then we've got Haley Wickenheiser, who's the most decorated player in women's hockey in the world. And she is assistant director of player development for the Toronto Maple Leafs. So we're not talking about just like, oh, I'm going to give you a job because so-and-so saw you coach, you know, your son's junior high school team. I'm not saying that's how it always happens, but sometimes it can. The point is, is that how are the opportunities being afforded? They're not being afforded necessarily. And we have to sit back and examine that. What do you have to do otherwise, other than win a world championship in many cases that these women have done in order to even qualify for an assistant coaching role for men? You all know how I feel about that. <laughs> so I don't want to sort of leave this segment without mentioning everywhere else that doesn't have a Title IX mm-hmm. and what that means for women in coaching. As someone who works in Latin America and on Latin American women's soccer, I just want to talk about mediocrity for a second. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, we also, we have to... <laughs> Jesus. We have to look at how corruption in major sports organizations, whether it's FIFA, whether it's the IOC, whether it's Comebol, whether it's the Argentine Federation, the Brazilian Federation, allows for a mediocrity when it comes to women that shows a gross neglect and lack of respect for what they do. And it's and corruption's not unlinked. And people treat these things in sports media as very different things. And they're not, because there's no transparency. There's no way to even hold them accountable for these practices. So I'm just going to talk a second about the Brazilian national women's team, which is coached by a man named Bajau, who has mm-hmm. never had a winning season in men or women's soccer ever in ever. his career. Wow. Yeah. When he lost his job for being terrible, in the second division of the Brazilian men's league, he got the job of women's national team coach again. And so it's corruption it's, it, that breeds this and allows this to keep going as well. It's not the only thing. Of course, there's over misogyny and sexism, but corruption is a central part of it that I think doesn't get the play that it should. Of course, this isn't just Brazil, so I don't want to caricature a place when, let's be honest, we got the tax returns for U.S. soccer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 2018 <laughs> fiscal year, former coach Jurgen Klinsmann got three point three five four million dollars just for not coaching that was a severance pay it's a severance (laughs) and jill ellis coach of the world champions women's national team wait for it her base salary is two hundred ninety one thousand dollars but brenda who else got paid more than jill ellis Tab Ramos, the U-20 coach for the Mets. Mm-hmm. And who else? Uh, U-19. And U-23. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone. And, and the, <laughs> you even name those coaches? I and the assistants, no. and their assistants, and also the president of U.S. Soccer Federation. Mm-hmm. So everybody, basically, that didn't get a team to the World Cup and win it. <laughs> So um, it's not just in Brazil, it's not exclusive to it, but I do have to say it is a scourge in global women's soccer. Mm -hmm. And um, right now, I just have to mention that the Colombian women Mm -hmm. and their struggle, there are denunciations going back from U17 national women's players against their coach. And this type of thing also, it just breeds this climate in which the abuse of women is, is... completely allowed with impunity. 
And so there's women in coaching, and there's women in coaching, and there's different aspects of that. Um, Linz, do you want to add something quickly? Yeah, I mean, this is just iterating. It's a, what a coach recently told me, which was, it's not going to be, the, the biggest sign of progress isn't going to be when a woman is, is hired as a coach of an NBA team. It's going to be when she's fired and then get gets, in a, another, gets another opportunity, yeah. right? Yeah. When she's fired and then gets to go again. That's when we can have a celebration. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the right note to end this segment on. <laughs> So for our second segment, we wanted to do something a little bit more happy for us. Um, You know, very off-brand. We can try. And for International Women's Day, I asked my co-host to pick a woman athlete that they felt did not get enough attention, historically speaking. And I'm going to start with Amira. Yeah, and I broke the rules because I didn't choose an athlete. Um, Yeah, okay, all right. A woman in Rules are more suggestions. They're aspirational. Okay. So, um, suggestions. So, I picked Dr. Donis Thompson, who was a black woman. And actually, okay, I lied. She was an athlete, but like that's not the significant part of what I'm about to say. So, she uh, was from Chicago, and right after Hawaii got statehood, they went after her and asked her to come be the coach of the track and field team, or really start the team, at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. So, she leaves Chicago with four black girls that she recruited to go down to Hawaii with her and she sets up a track and field program mirrored off the programs existing at HBCUs at the time and while she's there she turns University of Hawaii Manoa's program into a full-fledged track and field program they also start a volleyball program um, and a golf program as well and she starts working and dialoguing with Congresswoman Patsy Mink right at the time that Patsy Mink is authoring Title IX and so Patsy Mink in Congress, um, talking about Donis Thompson, said, Donis Thompson was one of the individuals who inspired my authorship of federal Title IX legislation by highlighting the inequities and in funding of women's collegiate sport. This is a woman who, as she was there through the 60s and into the 70s, developed, started with a budget of $5,000 and no scholarships, and developed within just a decade. Women had 30% of scholarships at University of Hawaii at the time, by the time of the end of her tenure. The budget had quadrupled. They hosted the first women's college golf tournament there, um, and their volleyball team became nationally ranked and for 10 seasons never dropped out of the top three. And so she is a trailblazer in often who's overlooked when we think about the history of Title IX, particularly as it applies to women's athletics. And I think it's really great because she's A, a black woman, but also it shifts our geography so we can think about Hawaii and how she's dealing with the intersection of Jim Crow and colonialism in the 60s. And just to end with a quote, when she was made um, the first women's AD at the University of Hawaii Manoa, as the program started to formalize after Title IX, she said, yeah, and somebody scoffed, like, should the women's AD be a woman or should we, like, find a qualified man to do it? And she said, it's absolutely important that the women's athletic director is a woman. Women need that visibility. They need to have a role model, someone who can do the prodding and get things done. And not just at the University of Hawaii, but across the nation. Nice. Nice. Woo. nice. Yes. Jessica. Yeah, I'm so excited about this. I want to talk to you guys today about Ayami Sato, who is easily the best female baseball player in the world, and she plays for the best baseball team in the world, which is Japanese national team. 
maybe y'all don't know that women play baseball, but they do. <laughs> and they actually do the World Cup. I went in August of 2018. So I actually got to see them play and it was thrilling and she's spectacular. So Sato was so good that she actually won the MVP award for the last three World Cups. That's the first time that's ever happened. The first two came after she shut out the eventual silver medalists in the finals. So in 2016, they beat Canada, and in 2014, they beat the US. And so Japan's actually won six straight of these titles. Like, they are easily the best. They have the only professional women's baseball league in the world in Japan. And you can tell when you watch them play, they are just like, a machine. It is a really thrilling thing to watch in person. Sato, though, she has a fastball that's been clocked at nearly 80 miles per hour. She, let me see, let me get this right. I'm not a baseball person. These are my moments. My, my baseball lack of knowledge comes out. Okay, so she has a peak curveball spin rate, which they clocked at this year's WBWC. The first time they actually had this measurement. Hers was measured at 2,583 RPM. Clayton Kershaw a great American pitcher of the, uh, in the last decade has an average of 2,373. She wow. spins the hell out of that wow. ball when she throws it. And so I just love her. I just think she's wonderful and she cares very deeply about women's baseball. So this is a quote that she gave me when I got to interview her through her translator. But she says that she wants, quote, the whole world to make a better environment for women's baseball. The more media covers the women's baseball, more people will know women's baseball is there. And then she said that she likes to do interviews because, hey, I'm at the World Cup. Women's baseball is here. Yes. Shireen? I don't like rules either. So, and this was very difficult for me. (laughs) Shocking, I know. Poor Brenda. (laughs) I'm so unruly. So I actually initially started off in my instinct, my visceral reaction was to say Brianna Scurry. I have to talk about Brianna Scurry. Yes. Yes. Growing up in a world where soccer is very white, predominantly white, she was the first woman of color that I saw play, even though Mm -hmm. I'm across the border. She's an American retired goalkeeper, and in my opinion, the most ridiculously underrated and Mm -hmm. least amplified player of the 1999 Dream Team. Mm -hmm. She's a World Cup champion. She stopped a penalty kick from... (laughs) This is critical, because that tournament was won on pens, and I'm like, how did we not hear about her? I love me so long to get her into the Yeah. Don't get me started. Okay, don't spoil her. I'm coming to that. (laughs) She gave the USA an advantage for that and propelled their victory. Scray was the starting keeper for the US Women's National Team for four World Cups, helped the team to win two Olympic gold medals. She was a founding member of the WSA, and she played three seasons as starting keeper for Atlanta Beat, which we all know that the league folded. Her career is a total of 173 caps, which is incredible. And she's the second amongst female goalkeepers in the world. She was elected to the National Hall of Soccer Fame just in 2017. Like Amira said, why it takes so long? Because the majority of the team had been there before her. So, oh, wow. Yeah, not, oh, yeah I know. Makes I know. so angry. Yeah, very angry. <laughs> I she, can burn it professionally. She was the first woman goalkeeper and the first black woman to be awarded that honor. <laughs> So maybe that's why. (laughs) She's an assistant coach with the Washington Spirit. Okay, so we love us some Brianna Scurry. And very recently, during the She Believes Cup, Adriana French, the current U.S. Women's National Team, had Scurry's name on her jersey. Yes, That made me cry a little, just a little. Everything makes Shereen cry a little. I cry a lot. (laughs) Okay, so 
my other selection, and this is really important for me. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, Brenda. I'm so she sorry. Says, I'm just going to mention Brianna really, really quick. quick. Sentence. Sentence. <laughs> we did a lot of rehearsal for this and went over. Keep At going. the age of 22, Nawal El Mutawakkil was the first Moroccan, African, and Muslim woman to win an Olympic gold medal when she won the 400-meter hurdles at the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Now, I talk about her because it's really important for North African, for continental Africa, for Muslim women to recognize this. Her race was watched live in her hometown, which is Casablanca. And the whole town came out and partied in the streets. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And when we think of traditionally Arab and Muslim women, we don't think of them hurtling to gold. And this is why it's very important. The King of Morocco decreed that all girls born on that date will be named after her. <laughs> so on that, in, because of her victory, which is, if you meet a whole bunch of Nawals that, that are like, what, 20 now? <laughs> That's probably why. Wow. She raced and studied while, stu- raced and she trained while studying uh, physical education and physiotherapy at the University of Iowa, at Iowa State. And she had been to the Mediterranean Games, the Arab Championships, the African Championships, and while all those before meddling. She pioneered the way for many, many Moroccan and North African young girls. She became a council member of the International Association of Athletic Federations. She was appointed Minister of Sport in Morocco in 1997, and she became the first Muslim woman ever to be elected to the IOC. I know, we're like, IOC, And is currently the co-vice president of the International Olympic Committee. She's vice chair of the Laureus Awards, the sports company. She still holds an annual charity run in Casablanca, and about 40,000 girls come out to it and she also chose what she wanted to wear while she did this and this is I'm just going to underline so thank you Shereen <laughs> Lynn okay I did follow the rules actually <laughs> thank uh, you <laughs> you are welcome wait now I got to find my notes okay so I wanted to pick someone in women's basketball history if you follow my work you probably are not surprised it's really hard to figure out who to highlight because there are so many amazing pioneers. But I just want to talk a little bit today about Ann Myers Drysdale. Are you happy with that choice, yeah. Erica? <laughs> <laughs> so in 1974 was a big year for Ann. She was the first player to be on the U.S. national team while still in high school. And then later that year, she became the first woman to get a four-year athletic scholarship to any college when she was at the UCLA basketball program. Um, on February 18, 1978 at U- UCLA, she got the first quadruple double in NCAA Division I history, right. which of course, we recently had Shaquilla Hill on the show to talk about the quadruple doubles and all that amazingness, but uh, you know, Anne was doing it first. In 1976, she was on the U.S. uh, team at the Olympics to win the silver medal, which was a really big deal at the time, because at the time, it was all, and of course, the USSR won that year, too, but Mm -hmm. Soviets dominated basketball. The U.S. was not a basketball powerhouse. This was really the U.S. announcing itself as a contender on the, you know, international stage, which, of course, now we think of as a given. In 1978, she was the first overall pick for the Women's National Basketball League. The name of the team is incredible. It was the New Jersey Gems, which I just love. And so she played that 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 league only lasted for about three years and 
like many women's leagues that we talk about on the show, had money problems and then fell, you know, fell out. But it was still a pioneering time in women's basketball, and I think they learned a lot from that that later on helped leagues like the WNBA learn to last. The biggest thing she's probably known for is that in 1980, the Indiana Pacers signed her to a 50,000 no-cut contract. And she was in their training camp for three days playing alongside the men who she said she regularly played pickup games with and everything. Now, she was too small. She was cut. Um, she didn't make the team. But she then... Even though she didn't make the team, the Pacers then hired her to become a color analyst for the team, which if you think that there aren't many women in the NBA, there were pretty much exactly as amount of women doing color broadcasting for the NBA <laughs> as there were playing. So she ended up, you know, pioneering in that level, too. She's gone on to be really involved in women's basketball. She's been the vice president of the Phoenix Mercury and worked yeah. in the front offices. And just it's just an incredible time. I just love thinking back to that time in uh, basketball history and love of thinking back to Anne. Yay. Last but not least, I get to go. Will not cry. Miraldes Maciel Mota, you probably don't know, but you might know her as Formiga. Uh, Formiga <laughs> is the brilliant midfielder hailing from Salvador, Brazil. Formiga means aunt in Portuguese. It's a name that she's actually embraced. She sees herself as the worker, the soldier, the team player par excellence. She started on the Brazilian women's soccer team at the 1995 FIFA Women's World Cup as the only player now who has presented in all six editions also of the Olympic tournament. <laughs> when wow. she was born on March 3rd, 1978, football for women had been legally banned in Brazil for 37 years. Wow. She is the last player on the squad who was born in the time of prohibition. She has also been the lone Afro-Brazilian player on the team at many, many points in her career. This is her 24th year playing on the national team. It means she has also been on the team longer than many of her teammates have been alive. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And in case you're wondering... She usually plays all 90 minutes. She wow. is an attacking midfielder, and she runs miles, mm -hmm. miles in those games. She's a gem. She's a treasure. You cannot find her jersey in Brazil. You cannot buy it. It's a disgrace. Uh, but we get to see her one last time for at least one more World Cup this summer in France. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty damn grateful. Happy birthday, Formiga. Yeah. I'm not stalking you. Uh, <laughs> regular fandom. Okay. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> okay, now this is the part of the show where we take some things we've been on fire about all week in sport and we set them aflame. It is the burn pile. Yeah. Woo! Lindsay, start us off. Oh, okay. All right. I'm starting off with an old friend of the show, I would like to say. Old friend of the burn pile. Barstool Sports. So this oh. week. We just yell burn oh, now. That collective that's it. Brown, like injected to my veins. It really, that was it. good. That was good. <laughs> Do that again. Okay. Barfstool. As Mira calls it. Okay. I mean, as uh, Brenda calls it. Barfstool. I can't remember. Anyway. Uh, so this week, comedian. Miel Bredro, and I am I apologize that I'm saying that wrong, but 
we're going to power through. So this week, she had a very big Twitter thread. She said that in December, Barstool Sports stole a video that she had made back in 2016. She's a very popular comedian. She had, And they tweeted it out on their account as a promo for the women's vertical at Barstool, which is on Twitter at chicks uh so just at chicks so she was upset that <laughs> they were using that they stole her material to use for promo for chicks and so she filed a digital media copyright act saying that they had to take it down mm-hmm. now in response barstool's lawyer reached out and tried to get her to rescind this dmca and the lawyer told her if she rescinded the notice, he would give her a $50 gift card to their online store. <laughs> a real treasure there. I just, I had to pause. We have to, I mean, I mean, that is just so much. Possibilities are endless. Yeah, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> Our friend Robert Silverman at the Daily Beast reported this week, he went back and did some investigating and found out that from January 1st, 2016 to December 31st, 2018, Barstool has been sued 11 times <laughs> for copyright infringement. So that is just, so this is not a loan act. They are taking other people's material online, using it to promote themselves. When Miel called this out, she has now not only been offered a $50 gift certificate, but she's been harassed nonstop Mm -hmm. on all of her online platforms Mm -hmm. because she refused to take it down. She has a podcast and she said that she had to get people to shut down the podcast Twitter account because it was get there was so much harassment. So we would like to throw that onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Nicely done. Okay, I'll take prerogative. Mine's quick, because it'll, it'll be clear to you. Two weeks ago, the mayor of Warsaw and former parliament member Rafael Truskowski signed a landmark declaration to support the LGBTQ plus community. His declaration is the first ever of such a kind to be signed in Central Eastern Europe and the first document to officially recognize LGBTQ plus rights in Poland. On Friday night... Legio Warsaw fans declared their opposition to civil rights with a huge banner unfurling in the stadium. It took up almost, I don't know, good good quarter of the entire gigantic stadium saying Warsaw free from F-word epithet, right? They also had an LGBT, I guess cues are clear, with a big, you know, no welcome Polish football fans have long faced violent hooliganism associated with far-right politics. The club took about a week to respond. (laughs) Must have been a real moral dilemma. (laughs) I mean, do you protect people's civil rights? Do you defend that kind of hate and violence? I guess it put them in an entire quagmire. And when they kind of, like, came up finally with a statement, they said, and this is through translation, this hurts the reputation of the club. Uh, so how many wait. times, so I just like <laughs> took a week to come up with that. It took a week to come up with that gem. And how many times, it's akin to a gift card. How many times, <laughs> I would just like to say, how many times have we seen the rep, reputation used as a way to justify sexism, racism, and homophobia. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. It has no place in football, and I want to put it on the burn pile. Burn! burn. Shereen! Okay, so this is literally 
women cyclists were forced to stop because men are slow at a Belgian race. You might have seen this headline last week, and I remember I had to read it twice. I'm like, okay, that's a metaphor for life, but (laughs) what is... I ha- oh, yeah. <laughs> An awkward moment occurred when Swiss cyclist Nicole Hanselman had broken away from the pack and had an incredible lead at the 30-kilometer mark. But officials at the Umlopet Nivesblad had asked her to pull over and wait when she caught up to the support vehicles of the men's race that had begun earlier. So she's a former Swiss road champion, and but she had a two-minute full lead, and the gap needed to be secured because the women were too fast. Now, in cycling, two-minute lead is quite a bit. You're on momentum, you're going forward, like you're full of adrenaline. It's really important. Can you imagine being forced to pull over? And the justification is that, well, you're too fast and they're too slow. So, unfortunately, because of this, Hanselman ended up placing 74th Mm. because of this. And she told the Cycling News, quote, It was a bit sad for me because I was in a good mood. And when the bunch sees you stopping, they just get a new motivation to catch you. And we could see the ambulances of the men's race. And I think we stopped for five or seven minutes. And then it just kills your chances, unquote. Mm -hmm. So... I want to burn race officials who had no other way to handle this, the situation, but to penalize women cyclists for, you know, because they're too fast. So, yeah, no, burn. 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 Amira. Yeah. So great. So, (laughs) you might have seen that this week, um, former Adidas director of global sports marketing, um, James Gatto, and the consultant, Meryl Code, and the sports business manager, Kristen Dawkins, were all sentenced to prison for their role in corruption scandal, um, which was essentially getting a little bit of money to some players for like the first time ever, right? Um, And so while the the sentences are relatively lenient, six to nine months respectively, what I want to burn is the moral outrage, particularly of the NCAA, like... Obviously, we don't have a burn pile without taking shamaturism to task. I really, the NCAA and the U.S. attorney who prosecuted this, who said, quote, these sentences begin to reflect the magnitude of harm that these defendants caused through a scheme that not only defrauded multiple public universities, but, <laughs> oh wait, but upended the lives of young student athletes and corrupted a game cherished by so oh many. God. Like, magnitude of harm what's harmful is this system where schools and coaches and seemingly everybody profits but the players who are providing the labor harm is players being hungry harm is Mm -hmm. people being killed and nobody looking or caring or looking the other way harm is uh, policing students who want to do a a memorial fundraiser for a teammate that was killed by their football program and then having to check and beg through the NCAA to see if that GoFundMe, if that memorial fund was legitimate. They had to get their stamp of approval, which is not the first time. Harm is selling at minimum $2,000 tickets to a Duke UNC game Mm -hmm. only for your star player 36 seconds in to bust out of his mandated shoes that he has to wear because of these deals, Mm -hmm. right? In a league that he has to play in because they're operating as a glorified farm system for the NBA. Like, that is harm. And it, so... 
Harm is the entire system that values players when they are laboring for them and then discards them, that wants to control their bodies, their voices, and their labor. Spare me your moral indignation. Burn that shit down. Burn! I should have gotten to go before that. Yeah. <laughs> no, your burn is good. Burn it, Jess. Oh, Jess burn it. Lovely, your burn. Thank, thank you, Shereen. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, this is serious, serious. So this is a good old-fashioned burn pile, but I want to send some love to the women's soccer players at Grand Canyon University Mm -hmm. because 12 current and former players have reported that their coaches have been verbally, mentally, and physically abusive for the last two and a half years. GCU is a Christian university in Phoenix, and it's a D1 athletics program. One player in particular said that in August of 2016, she was forced to run and do squats and lunges for two miles outdoors in triple-digit temperatures, eventually causing her to pass out, and she had to be revived in an ice bath to regain consciousness. Like she, Her memory of it is that she went black and woke up in the ice. According to the player, the head coach had ordered the workout as punishment for a preseason loss. Mm. The women want the coaches removed, but the school says that an internal investigation didn't turn up enough to fire them, and then they cite support from most athletes as a reason for inaction, which makes you wonder what percentage of athletes have to report their coaches for abuse before it's enough to warrant action. The school is characterizing this as a financial shakedown from the players, which you might remember is something that we have heard from Michigan State when it comes to Nasser. It's all garbage. It's just normal, normal garbage. And yet another example of athletes' reports of abuse being undermined by the very educational institutions that are supposed to support them, and I would like to burn that. Burn! After all that burning garbage, now let's celebrate the amazing accomplishments of women in sport with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. There's a whole bunch this week. Women been doing a lot. Uh, Honorable mentions go to Egyptian squash player Norel Shabini, who won the world championships in Chicago. The $1 million prize money is equally split between the male and female winners, and this is the biggest purse ever offered in squash, sponsored by the... Walter family. Woo. Oklahoma women's gymnastics team, yes. which won the NCAA gymnastics championship with a 197.775, which is only 0.2 points ahead of second place UCLA. Kyla Ross won the all around as well as the vault and the bars and former badass woman of the week, Caitlin Ohashi won the floor Yay. with a 10.0. Um, Okay, Mariama Jamanka and Anika Dresik of Germany won the gold at the World 2 Women's Bobsled Championship at the Whistler Sliding Center in British Columbia, Canada. Jamanka, of course Canada. Jamanka is also the Olympic, European, and World Cup champion. Former University of Connecticut Husky and women's basketball legend Rebecca Lobo is the first UConn player to have her number retired. Number 50 will hang in glory forever. <laughs> Who wrote that line? <laughs> I love the Huskies. Congratulations to sports journalist Grace Chiramansu, who won Sportswoman of the Year in Zimbabwe for her incredible feats as a karateka. 
Canberra United Dynamo, Rafilo Jane is the current vice captain of Banyana, Banyana Banyana, the South African national women's football mm-hmm. team, and got her 100th cap at the Cyprus Cup last week. Chiquita Evans, the first woman drafted into the NBA 2K League. Mm-hmm. Yeah. California senior Christine Anigwe notched a massive 32 points and 30 rebounds, 30 becoming rebounds. The, 30 rebounds. I'll pause there, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, 32 sorry. points and 30 rebounds. Like Tim Duncan levels of rebounds. <laughs> I think better than Tim. Better than Tim. Yeah, okay, yeah. better than Tim. Beca- I don't even know how there's time for them. And <laughs> becoming the first Division One player in 17 years to score at least 30 points and 30 rebounds in the same game. Jessica Mendoza has been named by the Mets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mets. Oh, wow. Tell also, us how you Mark really Metz, feel. Mark yeah. Metz, Mark okay. Metz. Yeah. <laughs> we are in New York. It's not only Yankee, New oh, yeah. York. As a baseball advisor for the club, this is in addition to her role as an analyst for ESPN. Sloane Martin will become the first woman to work as a play-by-play announcer for the Boys State Hockey Tournament in Minnesota. Woo. Can't be easy to get into (laughs) and we'd like to also shout out the women's soccer tournament winners this week the she believes cup england lionesses (laughs) (laughs) i mean they're laughing over my tears (laughs) she believes cup yeah yeah cup of nations australia matildas yeah algarve cup norway cypress cup north korea Mm -hmm. veronica alvarez is the new coach with the oakland a's for spring training she's working with the team's minor league players as a special guest instructor and can i get a drum roll please drum roll best, best drum roll one ever. in 97 episodes yeah. Yeah. can you come to our house yeah. every Sunday morning when this happens it is South Korea's Sungyun Park she took the 2019 HSBC Women's World Championship Park made nine birdies on her way to the sixth her sixth LPGA tour win she is 25 years old incredible Woo. thank you Woo. And for our final segment, what's good in your world, Shireen? This! Yay! Uh, to wrap it up, Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter, at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod trend, and you can email us at Burn It All Down Pod at gmail.com. <laughs> Check out our website www.burnitalldownpod.com. Burn it you know, it sticks with you, where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. On behalf of Shereen Ahmed, Amira Rose Davis, Lindsay Gibbs, Jessica Luther, and this fabulous New York City, Columbia audience, keep burning on and not out. That went so smooth. We did it. <laughs>